Welcome to Crossroads Church Podcast. We are located in northern Colorado, and you may hear us refer to ourselves as Orange Dots of Hope. And what's so cool and exciting is that Orange Dots of Hope are not just located in northern Colorado, but our community stretches literally around the world, and we are grateful for you. And this podcast is another way for us to make our world a little bit smaller. So it's so good to be with you. My name is Jessica, and I am your host. And we are in week seven of Campfire Stories, and I have an important message before I hand it off to Ryan. This message is a message of inclusion for all people who think or know or have been told you are not welcome to faith. Specifically, Pastor Ryan does a deep dive into the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Huge, huge trigger warning, and I will include cues at the end of this message. For our transgender siblings, Ryan sets the exact context of what it means to be a eunuch in the day of the time of this story, It is hard and painful to listen to, and it's necessary to share to fully understand just how deeply inclusive Jesus and his church is supposed to be, and how LGBTQ should be affirmed as fully part of the church, just as you are. 18 minutes in is about where you need to stop listening. If you are transgender, genderqueer, and don't want to hear some really awful things the world has said about you in antiquity, you know and you do not need the reminder. Everyone else, it's mandatory listening to fully grasp the impact of this passage. It's about five minutes later. It's safe to pick back up. Definitely not sooner. Everybody just clap really, really loud. Really loud. Okay, that's good. That was for you, Monica, back there. That was for you. Monica, first time singing with us today, so that was pretty great. So it's always good to see people engaged. You're like, I'm never volunteer. He's going to do that to me. So I uh, know it's good. My name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And if you are a guest, if you're tuning in online or here in the room around the atrium, thank you for being here today. Uh, it's wonderful to uh, be together. That's the, the whole point of the thing, is to be together, some digitally, some in the room, on campus, online. It is good. We're uh, in our series here called Campfire Stories, and we're looking at these stories all throughout kind of our, our scripture, the sacred scripture. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus or a Christian, the Bible has a sacred nature to it for us. And we've been looking at stories and their kind of parabolic nature, what they teach us. Uh, I, I, we haven't been uh, talking a lot about their historicity or anything like that, because the point is not to kind of get down to, is this historically accurate? Is it truth? Is it truth? And that, I think, is why it's inspired and has stood the test of time. Our anchor verse for this series, which is kind of, kind of the seedbed underneath it all, it says, there are also many other things that Jesus did. But if these were to be described individually, I do not think the whole world would contain the books that would be written. The idea of this is we don't need every story about Jesus. We need the ones that can give us the truth to help us understand the big picture. And it's true of all other stories, even ones that don't pertain necessarily or say the word Jesus within them. Uh, I went to Grand Lake yesterday. 
Uh, and we did old, old Fall River Road. First time we'd ever done that. It was a lot of fun. How many of y'all have done that? Old Fall River Road. That's great. For those of you that are online living in places other than Colorado, sorry. Uh, and uh, so went up, uh, and uh, that was kind of fun, went over. And we, we were having trouble parking because it was a Saturday. Everybody was there. And uh, we ended up parking in front of this little church. And uh, we'll call it St. Anne's because uh, that was its name. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I'm part of the and I look up at the sign because I'm a church guy, right? I've spent my whole life in church. It's just kind of my profession. And uh, right in huge letters on this sign, as if it wasn't hard enough to fit into a church if you were new, Here's what it said, right on the sign, in big, bold letters, it said, dress respectfully. It did not have a picture of me next to it. I just want you to know that. I wasn't even sure what that meant, right? Like, I didn't know respectfully. You have like casual, business casual, formal, and then respectful. Like, I don't know where that fits in. Uh, but I thought it was kind of interesting because today we're talking about fitting in and inclusion and belonging. And belonging is hard in this life. Uh, belonging is difficult, and belonging is especially hard in a faith community. Uh, depending upon your background, uh, where, where you kind of grew up, maybe if, if faith and church was a part of your life, it might be easier, but, but maybe you found yourself in a circumstance, maybe you're here today, and you're like, I am not sure why I'm here, but I definitely don't fit. <laughs> right? You just feel it. You sense it. Uh, it. It's hard to fit in, and it doesn't help when we, in church world, we don't make it easy on you either. Right? Uh, you just wonder, like, what does it mean? We put signs up that say dress respectfully and you're walking in and you could be dressed perfectly respectfully for you but then the question is like by what standard like who decides what respectful is like you could be in a tuxedo and walk in and maybe you're too respectful who knows what that means but we definitely make it hard and we all kind of know that experience of just not fitting in have you ever felt that way like most of us would say yeah i called it junior high i called it junior high i just never fit in. I was the, I, I remember in junior high and high school, I did everything to avoid the cafeteria, right? You know what I'm saying? Like the last place I wanted to go was have to try and show everyone that I had no friends, right? It was pretty clear. I just didn't need physical evidence of it, you know, trying to find a seat to sit down. And uh, we all have that experience of just like feeling in. We know what it's like to be labeled a variant, a variant. I've got my variant sweatshirt on today. Uh, anybody in the room watch the television show Loki? You've seen that show. Uh, if you haven't seen it uh, and you want to watch it, I would encourage you to leave uh, because I'm going to give you all kinds of spoilers right now. Sorry. Uh, it's been out long enough that it's your own fault, all right, if you haven't, haven't watched it. But um, Loki's this really fantastic television show on Disney uh, that really gets into this idea of a variant and what it means to be an outsider. And so Loki is this villain, if you've seen any of the Avenger movies, uh, whatever it might be, he's kind of, a, he's known as the god of mischief. The god, the god of mischief. Uh, some of you are like, no, no, no. Oh, okay, that's my, my kid's the prince of mischief, <laughs> the princess of mischief, right? But no, he's, he's known as the god of mischief. And, uh, and all of a sudden he gets arrested and he gets labeled and branded as a variant. And what's happened in this, this storyline, this like seven episode story, uh, like long movie is he's labeled this variant because he has deviated from what is known as the sacred timeline. It is the way in which the only actual Loki is supposed to behave in the multiverse, right? Are you with me so far? So there's all these different universes. And when a Loki steps out of line, there's an organization called the Time Variant Authority. And they watch for these variants and they show up through a magic door and they are arrest them, and they take them back, they judge them very quickly, and then they prune them. 
And it's the idea of pruning a timeline. There's one sacred timeline that keeps everything in order. As long as everybody functions the way they're supposed to in this one timeline. But when you have a a variant that starts to go off on their own, that has to get pruned back. And what's what's interesting is for a portion of the season, they give him this jacket. uh, And he has to wear this jacket. And on the jacket, in huge letters, is the word variant. It's like everywhere he goes, everybody knows that he doesn't fit in. Right? The word variance means the state, quality, or fact of being variable, divergent, different, or anomalous. Right? And for Loki in this story, the label basically means you don't belong in existence. You don't belong here. Like you have stepped out of what we deem is appropriate, what we deem is the way life should be going. And so now you don't belong here. And so what do they do? They have to destroy him. But they can't destroy him yet because they got to go find another variant Loki from another multiverse, right? And throughout the story, you meet all these different Lokis that have like, they've deviated from the sacred timeline. And what it's based on, this really wonderful parable, this really fantastic story, is this idea that when when we don't know where that timeline's going to go, when we don't know how that variant is going to behave, we're afraid, And we start to get fearful of the other. We get fearful of the other. And in our fear, variance quickly becomes deviance. And deviance means it's time to exclude you. You are a variant. You're not what we think you should be. You've you've strayed from the timeline. Your life doesn't look like what I think your life should look like. I'm afraid of what's going to happen I'm afraid of what you're going to do to my culture, to my society. I'm afraid of you. And so now I have to exclude you. And, and here's the thing. Like our sacred scriptures, the Bible, is full of variants, full of them. And part of the beauty of the Bible, the way I understand this collection of writings, is not to give us 100% perfect, reasonable, like this is exactly how God always was. It, that's, I just don't see that. I see it as to say to us, this is how humanity always behaves. And then humanity will always say, God told me so. And, and humanity will always say, who's the, now, who's some of the variants in scripture that you'll read that God told us, wipe them off the face of the earth. And then we look at Jesus because Jesus is the key, I think, to understanding God for us as Christians in the Bible. We're like, Jesus would never say white people off the planet of the earth. But we have all these variants. So we have the Canaanites, one of the earliest variants. Wipe them out. Don't have anything to do with them. Then we have the Samaritans that show up. And then later on, right, in the time of Jesus, if you're like, well, Ryan, that's Old Testament. You're talking Old Testament God. Let's talk New Testament God. The Pharisees. The Pharisees at the time that the the texts are written of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's deep tension between Christian Jews and these other sect of Judaism. You have Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Christians. They were all part of Judaism. And they're all in opposition in some way or shape to each other. And so they're all variants to one another. They're straying off the sacred timeline of Judaism. And so you have the Pharisees who become the villains. Oh, but you know, we got to give them up. And then eventually it just becomes the Jews as a whole. As Christianity takes its own timeline and separates itself from Judaism, now all of a sudden the Jews are the problem. And when you're a, a small sect of Judaism that branches off and becomes this own thing called Christian and you have no power and you have really no influence, and you then have you know, a somewhat measure of propaganda against the Jews, it's really not a problem until all of a sudden you become the ones in charge. And now some of those texts 
that called Jews variants have begun to be used and have been used throughout history to say, well, they said his blood be upon us and our children. And so it's time to wipe them out. And we have massive anti-Semitism that's taken place over years. And this is how we justify it from the Bible because we've misread and misunderstood that the Bible is a perfect example of how human beings tend to push other human beings away. It's not necessarily the perfect example when we say God did something or God doesn't do something. And, and here's the thing is I think about this idea of variance. I think the quintessential story of how the earliest Christian communities handled this idea in a Jesus fashion comes from this beautiful story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. How many of you in the house have ever heard of the Ethiopian eunuch? Raise your hand up nice and high. Total nerds, total nerds in the room. Like been to church way too much, right? If you know, if I say Ethiopian eunuch, you're like, oh yeah, I know that one. You need a life. You need a life. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, it's just to make those of you that don't know who the Ethiopian eunuch is, it's okay. You're, you can be in the club by the time this service is over within a few hours. Don't worry about it. It'll be all set. So this wonderful story of the Ethiopian eunuch we find in the book of Acts. If you're new to Bible study, the book of Acts is, uh, is, is really a, one of the few books we have. It's an actual book. Uh, and it goes with the gospel of Luke. So Luke Acts were written by the same person. We call this person Luke. Uh, and uh, tradition says Luke was a physician and was trying to give an account of what Christianity was all about and how it spread. Really, the Luke Acts, this two-volume work is about how the message of Jesus spread from a rural, like, Galilean hillside to Rome. That's the whole point. Like, if you want to understand what Luke and Acts is about, it's like, how did this message of Jesus, this person from the peasant class, how did this story end up in Rome? Under, under deep persecution by the time it was written. So this, these two come together. So that's, a, that's kind of the big picture of why Luke-Acts was written. And in Acts chapter eight, we find this really powerful story. And here's what it says. It says that the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord spoke to Philip. <clears throat> now we shouldn't get crazy and think like, oh, that means the angel showed up. <clears throat> we all have those moments in our lives where we sense a nudge and we say, oh, I feel like God or the spirit of the universe or whatever word you like to use is kind of speaking to me. And so you change jobs, right? Anybody ever done something like that? You just felt a nudge from the universe or God, whatever word you like. I don't think God really cares to be honest with you. He's not that petty or she, whichever, whichever pronoun you like. Now, this is what happens. It says, go, go. The, the spirit, spirit speaks to him and he says, get up and head south on the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, the desert route. So he got up and set out. Now, the thing you got to know about Philip is this isn't the Philip who walked with Jesus as a disciple. This is Philip who was one of the one of the seven that were chosen when Stephen was chosen to take care of the community, right? So if you remember, we talked about Stephen a few weeks ago, and he was uh, chosen as part of this group to help bring some chaos because the apostles, while they were good at talking, they were not good at organizing, okay? Uh, lest you think that being a disciple of Jesus meant you had no faults, read the first couple chapters of Acts, okay? So it was chaos. They were like, we just want to go study and smoke cigars. What are you doing? Leave us alone, right? And so they say, okay, let's appoint some people who are organized, who people respect, uh, that they're caring and concerned. And Philip was one of those. And then what happens is when Stephen is stoned, when Stephen is, and the persecution breaks out, they all kind of scatter, and Philip goes to Samaria. And Philip is in Samaria, which is north, and he's outside of Jerusalem, and he's bringing the message. Because remember, Luke Acts is about how does this message of Jesus, who, what is the message of Jesus? How does it get from Galilee to Rome? How does that happen, right? And so the, the, now you see Philip is being, he's being coming out, he's following this road that leads to the desert. 
And it's important that this story takes place outside of Jerusalem. It takes place outside of the cult center. It takes place outside of the, where the power is. That's all part of the story. You gotta think about this from the idea of this story is passed on to bring meaning and purpose to what's happening. So it's happening on this road outside in the desert. Transformation always happens in the desert. That's a free one, not even a fill-in. Transformation always happens in the desert, right? Somebody tweet that. That will preach, okay? But we're not talking about that today. Okay, so, so, so it says, go out. And he says, it, and, he, and so Philip starts to walk out. He says, now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, that is the queen of the Ethiopians. And he was in charge of her entire treasury, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Now, you got to remember, he, was he, he had been in Jerusalem. He would not have been allowed into the, temp into the inner court temple where the Jewish men were allowed. The, the temple was a picture of human segregation. <laughs> like, like, let's not call the temple this beautiful, inspired, wonderful thing that God established for all time because the only, there was like two people that could go into the Holy of Holies and the men could go in here, some of the women could go in here, then the Gentile converts that just were kind of God-fears, they could, but they had to stay outside, right? It's a picture of what humanity does. It's not a picture of God. Jesus is a picture of God, okay? All right, I just have to get that out. <laughs> and some of you are nodding. I appreciate that. Okay, so... So this eunuch, right, he's going and he's seated in his chariot, which tells you something about the wealth that he has. And he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. Now, here's what we need to know. I've got to sit right here and talk about the Ethiopian eunuch for a while because we have to really understand what's happening here. So the Ethiopian eunuch, if you've ever felt like an outsider, the Ethiopian eunuch was a triple outsider, a triple outsider when it comes to who he was and his identity, Right, because he was a gender variant. He didn't fit into the binary norms of male and female. So, so in, in antiquity, this was a massive problem. Not that we have any problems with it now. If you missed it, that was me rolling my eyes. For those of you online. Okay, right at the camera. We haven't evolved much, okay, but a little bit. Right? So, so he didn't fit into this binary world that we want to make. And not only that, he was a gender variant, but he was a foreigner. So he was outside the people of Israel and a racial minority. <laughs> and, and all the white people in the room are like, all the white males in the room are like, well, I can't associate with him. So right now, and hear me, some of you are getting ticked off because I just said white male. <laughs> Don't identify with the eunuch if you're a white male, okay? Don't even try it, <laughs> all right? That's not you, right? Don't identify with the, with the Ethiopian eunuch, okay, in the room. Now, I'm teasing. There might be areas in your life there, but let's just, let's be real. This person was under a complete domination system that said, you are worthless, everything. So he had gone, and he's still interested in temple worship, right? But think about what's happened. In, in our contemporary mind, we hear the word eunuch and we think about like a castrated man. But the word eunuch had such a broader definition and meaning of all types of kind of, of sexual variances in ancient times and antiquity. And so biblical eunuchs could really stand for all types of sexual minorities. The literal meaning of the word oftentimes is the keeper of the bed, Right, the keeper of the bed. And, and, and eunuchs were oftentimes brought into very, very high positions of power and influence, like to protect and guard women in royal palaces, because there was this thought that they weren't interested in women. It, it's not necessarily an accurate thought, but it was the thought, right? 
And so, so they wanted to make sure, so somebody employed a eunuch or created a eunuch through war, that's oftentimes what would happen. They thought this was a surefire way to make sure that they will leave my women alone. Again, all kinds of problems here in that statement. And that's what was going on, right? So there was this sense that like, okay, we put this person in charge, they're a variant, they're a deviant, right? But, but we have to recognize that these were not just, oh, it's just an occupation, right? In all of the Mediterranean world, they were considered outsiders and blemished. And the chosen people of God were no different. If you look it up in Deuteronomy chapter 23, And in Leviticus chapter 21, you'll find exactly how eunuchs were to be set outside the camp, how they weren't allowed to serve as priests. They weren't allowed to be a part of of this world of worship. They were seen as separate. In in all of the ancient Mediterranean world, this label eunuch would be what we would call a master identity, a master identity. And if you are a part of a, a, a minority group, you understand more than any of us that idea of a master identity. It goes with you no matter where you go. It's seen, it's visible. It's just, it's, it's what you are brought, brought into. It's what, in everybody's mind. It's like, this is the filter in which we think about this person. It's a master identity. They were the most despised and derided group of men in antiquity. So if we start late, so second century, right? So a little bit later than when Acts was written. Acts might've been written early in the first century, but it's probably written a little bit earlier, like the 90s. So a little bit later on, there was a satirist called Lucian of Samosota. And he wrote this kind of like play story where there were these two professors vying for a position in the philosophy department. And one of the professors who was vying for this position was a eunuch and the other wasn't. And the one who wasn't a eunuch, the opponent, this is what Lucian has him saying in his speech against the, the, other, the other man, the eunuch. He says, uh, eunuchs are ambiguous sorts of creatures, like a crow, dehumanizing, like a crow, which cannot be reckoned either with doves or with ravens, neither man nor woman, but something composite, hybrid and monstrous alien to human nature. One scholar regarding the place of eunuchs in this broader ancient Judaism culture uh, assigned to them this like, idea that they were like illegitimate children. They were, they were sit on the outsides. They were the unfortunate ones. And, and he said they had a grave genealogical impediment. They simply were not whole and complete. They were, uh, it, 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 within Judaism, they were men who were unable to bear children and receive circumcision. And those were two extraordinarily important marks of manhood within antiquity, within ancient Judaism. They just didn't fit. So Josephus and Philo, both Jewish kind of philosophers and historians, Philo was born in like 35 BC and he lived until about 50 CE. So about 25, 30 years after Jesus he lived. But he wrote during Jesus' lifetime And Josephus, who wrote a little bit later, kind of more contemporary, he was born about maybe five years after Jesus was crucified. So these Jewish philosophers give us a great picture of within Judaism, what it meant like to be shunned and lived in this world. And so Josephus labels eunuchs as monstrosities. He says they're monstrosities, which should be completely shunned on account of their unnatural effeminacy and lack of procreative ability like deeply insensitive to the reality that many eunuchs were made that way through war and being captives, right? This was was within the culture of Judaism at the time. And it was within the broader culture. Uh, Philo refers to them, listen to this, Philo refers to them as worthless persons 
worthless persons barred from entering the sacred assembly. They are men who debase the currency of nature and violate it by assuming the passions and the outward form of licentious women. And yet, the Ethiopian eunuch still goes to that church. Still is seeking and still is trying to understand what's going on. That's who's sitting in the chariot. And we will miss the story if we miss that. That is who is sitting in the chariot. And that's who the spirit says to Philip, go and join up with that chariot. The spirit says, go and join up. I don't care what your religion has told you. I don't care what the law tells you. Go up and join with that chariot. And so Philip ran up ahead and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said to him, do you understand what you're reading? Now think about this. Philip, he's so sweet. He's so sensitive. He starts with a question, not an assumption, right? The assumption could have easily been, you don't have any idea what that means. Let me get up there and show you what I'm talking about. Come on. He, he gives human dignity and value to a person who would have never been allowed. And he says, do you understand? Do you understand what that means? And it's a question And the Ethiopian eunuch replies, how can I, unless someone instructs me? So he invited Philip to get up and sit with him. Now, can we please just recognize what the Ethiopian eunuch was asking Philip, a Jew, to do? To set aside everything he'd ever been taught about how God thought about Ethiopian eunuchs. To set aside everything that the law, that his tradition had said, they're outsiders, They're unclean. If you go and and, and are around that person, they touch you, you'll be unclean. But the spirit says, go run up with that chariot. And so Philip comes and he is invited. And I wonder if Philip was like, you don't know. In that moment, it has to raise. But here's what's so powerful. Philip welcomed the invitation. He welcomed the invitation and he climbs up into the chariot And we find out the scripture passage that he was reading. And it was this. It was in a, 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 so Isaiah is this really long uh, book in the Old Testament. It's actually probably three different writings. He's reading from what we call second Isaiah or deutero Isaiah. And it's it's a a school of thought deeply, deeply entrenched in the, the the nation of Israel and its reform and its ability to be a justful people. What does it look like to honor God in this world as Jews to be the chosen people? What does it look like to fail at that? And this was what he was reading out of Isaiah 53, it is. He says, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Now, could you imagine? You're the Ethiopian eunuch and you're reading this. It makes perfect sense that you are connecting with this passage. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who will tell of his posterity? For his life is taken from the earth. So that's what he's reading. First of all, the fact that he has a scroll, we can't pass by that. Nobody has scrolls. Nobody has a Bible. Nobody has these things. I mean, you'd have to have incredible wealth to have come up with a copy of a written scroll right now. And first of all, the scroll would be like, the scroll of Isaiah, they found a scroll of Isaiah in the uh, Dead Sea, in in the Dead Sea area at Qumran. And the thing is like eight miles long. I mean, it's huge, right? That's an exaggeration. It's like there's 4,000 people here. It's all the same, right? (laughs) 
And so he's reading from this. Now, the eunuch says to Philip, this is what he asks him. Think about this question. He says, I beg you about whom is the prophet saying this, about himself or about someone else? I think maybe the Ethiopian eunuch is finding himself in the text. (laughs) And what's so powerful is he's reading this portion out of Isaiah's suffering servant passage that as Christians, we see Jesus as a reflection of, in its original writing, it was probably talking about the nation of Israel itself, but we understand it as a foreshadowing of Jesus who suffered and was humiliated. But the eunuch identified deeply with this picture. It made sense to him. As he's reading through the school, like he had been utterly stripped of his honor. He was a total outcast in, in the society. His life had been removed. He had no posterity. He had been utterly humiliated like a sheep. He had been sheared. He had been slaughtered. And the story goes on that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with that scripture, beginning right where he was, he proclaimed Jesus to him. He proclaimed Jesus to him. And I love that Philip or Luke, the author, equates Isaiah's suffering servant with Jesus. He says, listen, (laughs) you're getting it. Because all the stuff that we've been taught about triumph and war and victors and all those things, that's not how God works. And he began to explain Jesus. And if you read throughout the gospel of Luke and Acts, you read them together, you'll see this big theme of reversal always taking place. The suffering is turned into glory. Jesus cannot enter into his glory until he has suffered and died. And you'll read all throughout Luke that that there is this exaltation of the suffering ones. There's this exaltation, like, and that's the hope that's good. So you read through Luke and you have, you have the outsider and the lepers and you have the woman who's caught in, you have all these stories of people that are the outsiders, that are the foreigners and they, in their suffering, encounter Jesus and are exalted and lifted up. And this has to be the hope that was given. Like Philip, this is the gospel that Philip gives to the Ethiopian eunuch, that you are not an outsider. That what Jesus shows us is that even the one who was put on a cross, hung outside the temple city, rejected beyond rejection of the Jewish people, has been exalted and is now King of kings and Lord of lords. And his path is the way to wholeness in this world. Not the temple, not the religious, This wasn't about substitutionary atonement. I promise you, Philip did not say, well, Mr. Ethiopian eunuch, let me tell you something. There's this big chasm and God is on one side and you're on the other. And there is no way that you can get there. It's just too big. And what's in that chasm is all your sin. But there's this bridge that looks like a cross. And if you just walk across that bridge and you can spend eternity with God forever and ever and ever, that would have made no sense to the Ethiopian eunuch. He'd be like, what are you talking about? I've been spending my whole life trying to get close to this God. If there's a chasm there, it looks like the temple. If there's a chasm there, it looks like church. If there's a chasm there, it looks like religion. If there's a chasm there, it looks like you, Philip. That's what he would say. He says, no, 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 we've got it all wrong. There's a a, a beautiful article called The Ethiopian Eunuch in His Bible written by a guy named F. Scott Spencer. Just absolutely fantastic article. And, and this is what he says about the presentation of the gospel, this idea that, that was, was like an atonement theory presented. He said that would have meant nothing to the eunuch. Rather, 
The implicit message of the story of the gospel is one of radical social reversal, deeply relevant to the eunuch's situation. In Jesus Christ, the severest humiliation gives way ultimately to exaltation. Shame is replaced by honor, truly a welcome word of good news to the beleaguered eunuch. That's the gospel. It speaks right into our hearts, right into those spaces. Now, what a lot of us don't know is the portion of Isaiah that he's reading. When he's reading it, there's no chapter and verse, right? It's just a big scroll. And if you were to scroll over a little bit, like if he would have been on his iPad, you know, and like scrolled up, right? Just, a, just we would call it three chapters, but just like a couple of scrolls ahead in Isaiah 56 comes something really powerful that has to be related. Like Philip had to have pointed this out. Otherwise, he'd be the worst evangelist ever. But three chapters later, this is what it says. The foreigner joined to the Lord should not say. In other words, the one who seeks to be with Yahweh. So the word Lord here is literally the name of God, of the Jewish God, Yahweh. So the foreigner joined to Yahweh should not say, Yahweh will exclude me from his people. In other words, you can't say that. You can't say that God's going to exclude you. You can't say that God doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Nor should the eunuch say, See, I am a dry tree. I have no space here. I don't belong. I'm just dead. For thus says Yahweh, this is the vision of God. This is the vision of the Jewish God. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, who hold fast to my covenant. And Jesus would say, what is that? Love God and love your neighbor. Right? To the eunuch who will do that, I will give them in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, an eternal name which shall not be, which shall not be cut off, will I give them. <sighs> That's way better than, okay, you're on this side and you're a terrible person. You deserve hell. And you're on this side as a really, 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 really good God who's totally pure and holy and sin can't stand to be in that presence of that God. And this chasm, and then the only way to get past it was for this God to take on flesh and create a bridge. What? No. It's like, don't, don't let anybody tell you you're not mine. Don't let anybody tell you you're not mine. And so this is the presentation that you're in, Mr. Ethiopian eunuch. You have always been in. We just had to catch up, but you're in. And so Acts 8, 36 through 38 says, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, there's water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? I wonder how many times he had watched different ritualistic baptisms take place and he wasn't allowed. I wonder how many times he saw this. Probably a lot because baptism is not like what we do now. Baptism was just a part of ritual life. He says, there's water right there. And there's a message here that says the kingdom of God and the gospel is as available as water. It's right there. What's to stop me? So he orders the chariot to stop. Philip and the eunuch, that's important. Philip and the eunuch both went down into the water and he baptized them, touching this one who was an outsider, who was an outcast. And he baptized him. You see, baptism uh, at this time was the, 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 the statement. It was the symbol. It was the sign of full inclusion in this community. And I love that this, this, is, this, this, this story has such antiquity to it. There's no like, there's no like class he goes to. There's no, there's, 
It's not like 26 weeks of catechism. Because that, that, if we're not careful, turns baptism into what we've done. And baptism and communion and sitting in this space and everything we do is always about what God has done and God is doing. It's never about us. And this is my favorite part. When they came out of the water, the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more, but continued on his way rejoicing. But what about the discipleship program? He didn't learn our doctrines. He didn't learn our rules. He didn't learn what it means to dress respectfully. I love this part of the story. It's like God was like, just leave him alone. Don't screw it up. He's got it. Philip, if you stick around, you're going to screw it up. It's just not that complicated. Everybody's in. Don't screw it up. He goes away rejoicing. All the rules that kept him out, in one moment they're gone and he goes away rejoicing. And the spirit of God, not Philip, not, you know, I love it. It's not Philip then walks with him and we disciple one another and we spend our lives together and you learn all the books of the Bible in order, just like me. And you learn what I think about atonement and you learn how often I think we should go to church and how much money I think we should give. Those are all wonderful things to talk about, but there's something powerful about this ancient story that the spirit calls Philip, Philip obeys, and the spirit gives the Ethiopian a status update, a new identity. No, I don't want to call Philip. Sorry about that. I was like, who's got their phone on? Jim, is that you? It's like, turn your phone off, Jim. It's like, it's me. Right? What are we talking about? Discipleship. I'm not against these things. I'm against when those things become hindrances to transformation. Because transformation isn't about information. It's about encounter. It's about love and being accepted. See, the Ethiopian is no longer on the fringe, a God-fearer who had been marginalized. Now he's a full member of the household of God. Now, here's what I would say. He was always a full member of the household of God, but religion and society had to catch up. We had to catch up with the truth. I don't think that the Ethiopian eunuch gets baptized and something is now true that wasn't true. I think baptism is this affirmation that I believe it and I'll live in it, but it always was. That's, that's to me, in my mind, that's how grace has to work. It's what always is, always has been, always was. And that's the message. So here's the thing. Don't miss this. Holy cow. Okay, we got to hurry. I was like, what? Okay. Jesus labels valuable what we label variant. That was 35 minutes to get to there. Okay. Jesus labels valuable what we label variant. And we should never forget that. And we should never overcomplicate that. And so in your everyday, normal peacemaking lives, when you walk out of here, a couple of things. Remember, when you're made to feel like a variant, no matter who it is that makes you feel that way, whether it's church or Ryan or a friend or society, when you're made to feel like a variant, remember, so was Jesus. He was pruned. He was cast out on a cross but he rose again. This is the message. This is the metaphor. This is the beauty of the Christian life. It's death and resurrection over and over and over again. 
It's an invitation into that cruciform life. And don't forget this. If you're trying to figure out if you fit in in the whole God thing, and maybe you've been a part of a faith or a community that told you you didn't fit in for whatever reason, desire, not religious conformity, is a prerequisite for inclusion. It's just desire. It's desire. Like there is a choice. I, I can't gloss this over even though I'm going long, Jim. And I, I appreciate you saying, go ahead, you sign the check. So we'll just keep going with that, okay? <laughs> says, you desire, you're in, but, but you have to want to be in. There is the choice involved. There is the choice to say, I want that. Like the Ethiopian eunuch just desired. He couldn't fit all the rules. He couldn't, he couldn't possibly do that, but he had desire. And then here's the thing. For those of us in the room, that we have the privilege of being the dominant culture. We have the privilege of allowing the, 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 the path that we've taken, the way we were born, the zip code we grew up in, the color of our skin that just provides a measure of privilege for us. This one's for you and for me, okay? When we're tempted to label someone a variant, remember you're one too. You might not see it, you might not recognize it, but in some way, you don't fit in, you're a variant. And that's the big twist in the movie Loki. So in the storyline, all of the, all of the uh, agents who work for the Time Variant Authority, they think they're created by these time gods. And they think that they've been created to keep order in the whole universe. And what we find out is that no, they're actually all variants that have been pruned and their mind has been wiped off and now they're just mindlessly following a set of rules, eliminating and destroying people's lives. All of us are variants. And that truth can actually set us free. It really can. So how does this make our world better? Well, first of all, it's about to finish and you'll get to go home. <laughs> but how does living in this reality of inclusion Inclusion of the value of inclusion, it teaches humility. It teaches humility to say that I am going to be a person that radically includes, that radically welcomes. I'm going to be a person that go jumps in the chariot with the person that my whole culture, my whole life, my whole religion has told me, don't you dare. And by the way, every generation has their don't you dare. Every generation has their Gentile. Every generation has their variant. We, it just is what it is. Be the one that jumps in the chariot. Be the one that explains the inclusion that this Jesus was excluded, but God glorified and lifted him up that he now sits at the right hand of the Father. All metaphors, by the way, right? <laughs> to say, this Jesus whom we crucified has now been exalted, right? That if you have been crucified, if you have been left out, you too are exalted because God says you're in. And I just see humility as the pathway. It's the pathway to loving what we want to exclude. We want to exclude it. We want to feel special. We have to start there. We all want to be the chosen ones. I get it. But if I hold that value that, yeah, I'm chosen, but I'm chosen to include. I'm chosen to include. I'm chosen to include. It's, it's why Jesus can make the claim to be the exclusive savior of the world because he includes everybody. <laughs> he includes everybody. It's why the gospel is truly good news. Okay, stand up. Little twist. What's God inviting you to? This is a celebration. By the way, the good news is good news. So today, I want to end with this celebratory moment. 
that Philip is baptized into the community of faith. So what's God inviting you into? Maybe God's inviting you to become more like Philip today, loving and inclusive of those I think of as variants. Maybe you feel God inviting you to know that you are loved and accepted regardless of what culture or religion might say to you. And I hope that everybody who's listening, if you're still with me, kudos to you, bonus points. You're gonna get out of purgatory sooner. Listen, I hope that every person who's tuning in, you're in the atrium, you're in the foyer, you're here in the room, that you hear the spirit of God whispering to you, I will make Crossroads a community marked by the good news of Jesus that has always included the religious and cultural variants that you'll say, that's what I'm being invited in to be a part of today. And I will give my time, my talent, and my treasure to make this the most loving, welcoming 40 acres in Colorado and maybe even the world. Because it's needed. It's needed. So you're clapping. That's good. Because this next song requires some clapping. Maybe for those with a little rhythm, some swaying. Because it's a statement of truth that says, I'm a child of love. So let's sing this together. And then I have a blessing for you. So whenever and wherever you are listening to this message, would you open the palms of your hands and receive this blessing? May God bless you and keep you. May love shine her light of truth on the lies you have been told about God and yourself. For those who have been made to feel like an outsider, unwelcomed by God, may the Spirit change your internal status from variant to valuable. May you know that your desire to experience God in community is the only prerequisite for your inclusion at Crossroads, a family of faith centered on the radical love of Jesus, who was the ultimate variant. And no matter what has led to your feeling excluded from the love of God, or led to your exclusion from other faith communities, whether it was your gender identity, sexuality, financial position, intellectual abilities, your immigration status, marital status, political views, or any other number of labels that can divide and separate us. Today, may you leave here knowing that you are fully understood by God You are fully welcomed, affirmed, and included here. That nothing can separate you from the perfect love of God in Christ. You are not a variant. You are, always were, and always will be a valuable child of love. See you next week.